calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey listeners, before I start this episode, I want to give a trigger warning. This episode includes somewhat graphic details and frank discussion regarding the rape of Chanel Miller by Brock Turner on the Stanford University campus in 2015. I will be sharing details about the attack and the case that may be triggering to many, so please listen with caution. If you need to sit this one out, I understand. With that being said, I think it's important to tell the full story. The victim, Chanel, has made her story known so that we may learn something from it, and if I didn't share the details, I wouldn't feel I was doing her story justice. If you or someone you know is suffering from the result of a sexual assault, I would definitely recommend going to RAINN.org, R-A-I-N-N.org, or giving them a call at 800-656-4673 for support and resources. Listen with care. I love you all. Ray John. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, hello, everybody. I hope that we are all doing well today. I am feeling like I have a weight lifted off of my chest. I feel super great today, except for the fact that I don't feel super great. I do either have a little bit of a cold or I'm dealing with some really crappy allergies. So if I sound a little bit more congested than usual, I apologize. But in my opinion, I sound good enough to record. So I hope that you're all okay with it. But that's also why this episode is a little bit later on in the day and not first thing Monday morning as it usually is. I had my last day at my retail job yesterday, but when I got home, I felt absolutely exhausted and my head was pounding really terribly. So I was able to get some work done on it, but I wasn't able to get it completed in time to go up first thing this morning. And as usual, but especially for this episode, I really wanted to make sure that I got it right and that I got all of the information down that I wanted to. I definitely set myself up for a big endeavor this week by going into the topic that I am. I read Chanel Miller's memoir, Know My Name, in the spring of 2020, in that sweet part of lockdown where it still felt like a little like a vacation, but cabin fever was starting to kick in. I had wanted to read the book for so long, but I'm too cheap to buy hardcovers, and I didn't want to get a digital copy. But eventually, with the need for more books to keep me occupied in lockdown, I ordered a hardcover copy online. This is a long book. And it is very intimate and detailed. Chanel spares no element of her story that she does not describe in excruciating detail. This book takes you into her mind and into her body, and she invites you there with harsh honesty, compassion, and even humor at times. I immediately began recommending this book to everybody in my life. I think it's one of the most important books on not just campus sexual assault, but sexual assault as a whole of all time. I went into a lot of effort in preparing for this episode. I read through police reports, court documents, letters to the judge, and countless interviews with Chanel Miller, Brock's family and loved ones, and from articles written about the trial. Throughout this episode, I will be quoting Chanel Miller's victim impact statement, which was read in court directly to the defendant, Brock Allen Turner. Chanel is very blunt about what happened to her and spares no details. These quotes in particular may be triggering to some. 
to be aware of them when they come up, I begin each quote by specifying that it is taken from her impact statement. To top off the episode, I want to read you how she began her statement in court. Your Honor, if it is all right, for the majority of the statement, I would like to address the defendant directly. She turns to Brock Turner. You don't know me, but you've been inside me, and that's why we're here today. On the night of January 18, 2015, on the Stanford University campus at the Kappa Alpha Fraternity, Brock Turner, a 19-year-old freshman swimmer for the college, sexually assaulted the 22-year-old who was only known as Emily Doe until the trial and for many years following. Her name is Chanel Miller. She first went public in 2019 on 60 Minutes. Here is what she said about the night of the party and assault from her impact statement before we get into all of the details. On January 17, 2015, it was a quiet Saturday night at home. My dad made some dinner and I sat at the table with my younger sister, who was visiting for the weekend. I was working full-time and it was approaching my bedtime. I planned to stay at home by myself, watch some TV and read, while she went to a party with her friends. Then I decided it was my only night with her and I had nothing better to do, so why not? There's a dumb party ten minutes from my house. I would go, dance like a fool, and embarrass my younger sister. On the way there, I joked that undergrad guys would have braces. My sister teased me for wearing a beige cardigan to a frat party like a librarian. I called myself Big Mama because I knew I'd be the oldest one there. I made silly faces, let my guard down, and drank liquor too fast, not factoring in that my tolerance had significantly lowered since college. The next thing I remember, I was in a gurney in a hallway. I had dried blood and bandages on the backs of my hands and elbow. I thought maybe I had fallen and was in an admin office on campus. I was very calm and wondering where my sister was. A deputy explained I had been assaulted. I still remained calm, assured he was speaking to the wrong person. I knew no one at this party. When I was finally allowed to use the restroom, I pulled down the hospital pants they had given me, went to pull down my underwear, and felt nothing. I still remember the feeling of my hands touching my skin and grabbing nothing. I looked down and there was nothing. The thin piece of fabric, the only thing between my vagina and anything else, was missing, and everything inside me was silenced. I still don't have words for that feeling. In order to keep breathing, I thought maybe the policemen used scissors to cut them off for evidence. Chanel was unconscious for the assault, and if it weren't for two Swedish grad students riding their bikes in the middle of the night to intervene, who knows for how long the assault would have continued. The grad students held down her attacker until the cops arrived where they cuffed and arrested him. He was released later that same day after posting $150,000 bail. Brock Turner was arrested on January 28, 2015 with the following counts. Rape of an intoxicated person. Rape of an unconscious person. Sexual penetration of an unconscious person. Sexual penetration of an intoxicated person. Assault with intent to commit rape. He pled not guilty to all of these charges on February 2nd. The trial began on March 14th, 2016 and would last 16 days until March 30th, 2016. The judge presiding over the case was Aaron Persky. Fuck this guy. He was found guilty of counts three through five with the first two counts, rape of an intoxicated person and rape of an unconscious person, withdrawn by the prosecution due to a lack of DNA evidence. Brock Allen Turner was sentenced on June 2, 2016 to only six months incarceration in Santa Clara County Jail, then three years of probation. He was then released three months early due to good behavior. Turner had to register as a sex offender and will have to do so for the rest of his life. He must also participate in a sex offender rehabilitation program. In December 2017, he appealed his case, which was thankfully denied in August 2018. This case was so important in so many ways that thankfully the California legal system listened when demands of change were asked of them. California legislature now requires a prison term for rapists whose victims are unconscious. There is much debate as to whether or not Brock should be considered a rapist or whether digital penetration should be considered rape. Because of this case, in California law, it does. In research for this episode, I saw opinions all over the internet that Brock is not, in fact, a rapist. 
I even saw an article about it on Time.com. But he is, in fact, a rapist. He did, in fact, rape an unconscious Chanel Miller. He is evil. Before we get into the police report and dirty details of the case, I want to talk about the focus of this story, Chanel Miller, and who she is as a person outside of this terrible event in her life. She was born just 27 days before me, on June 12, 1992, in Palo Alto, California, a Gemini queen. She is the eldest of two daughters to a Chinese mother and an American father. Her mom had come to the U.S. to follow her dream of becoming a writer, and her father is a retired therapist. They really sound like awesome parents. She attended UC Santa Barbara and graduated with a degree in literature in 2014. I know so many people that go to this school, and since Chanel and I are basically the same age, it's strange. Like, I almost feel like we could have crossed paths at some point in our lives. Here are some other things I remember learning about her from her memoir. She's an amazing artist, a talent that was truly discovered while in therapy during and after the trial. She and her sister are very close. As the older sister, she feels really protective of her. She's super goofy, nostalgic, a little awkward maybe, but in an endearing way. She loves food, her friends, reading, and honestly sounds like someone I would really love to hang out with. Here is what was detailed in the police report. Now I want to note that if I were writing this report, it would be written a little bit more kindly and empathetically, but because this is an official document, again, these are very, very frank discussions of sexual assault that happened, so please listen with care. The victim was seen wearing a tight black dress, which was pulled up to her waist. Her underwear and phone were next to her, so her genitals were exposed. The back of her dress was covered in pine needles, and the back of her long hair was disheveled. She was wearing brown boots that were still laced and tied, and zippers on them fully zipped. She was lying in the fetal position. A sweatshirt looks to have been partially taken off of her, with the left sleeve still partially on her left arm. She was wearing a black bra, which appeared to be disheveled, with part of it exposed through her dress. The top of her dress was pulled down over her shoulders. She was wearing a necklace that had a feather pendant on it. The pendant was wrapped around to the back of her neck. The cops wrote, Turner had a strong odor of alcoholic beverage emanating from his person. I noticed that his pants seemed to be disheveled around his crotch area, and he had what appeared to be a cylindrical bulge consistent with an erect penis under his pants. He had dirt on his face and pants as if he had been in a physical struggle. After listing a lot of the physical evidence and the reported statements from victim and perpetrator, the notes start to get a little bit more personal. The report says, Since the incident, she, the victim, feels really out of it. She does not have any noticeable injuries. She also did not feel any pain from the incident. Something that I don't think she was being totally honest about at the time. She deals with things privately, so she does not feel like interacting a lot. What happened to her is upsetting to hear. She does not want to tell friends and have them freaking out. She has not told her parents, but will when she has a better understanding of what happened. It also says, She has blacked out before from drinking, but only when she has been continually drinking for a long time, and it's usually at the end of the night when it happened. She has not blacked out often. Here's what happened from the Swedes on Bikes perspective. Two Swedish grad students, Peter Lars and Carl Frederick Arndt, were riding their bikes around the Stanford campus at 1 a.m. Okay, why? I mean, I'm so glad they were there, but who goes on a bike ride at 1 a.m.? According to Peter and Carl, they surprised Brock behind the dumpster and saw that he was on top of an obviously unconscious woman, whose dress, they could see, had been pulled up and no underwear was seen. Peter testified that he saw Brock Turner in the act and hollered at him, What the fuck are you doing? She's unconscious! Turner then quickly got up and attempted to run away. Peter chased Brock down while Carl stayed with Chanel to see if she was breathing. When Peter got close enough to him, he tripped Brock down to the ground and pinned him. Allegedly, Brock was smiling, causing Peter to yell at him, What are you smiling for? Brock later testified that he was laughing because he found the whole situation so ridiculous. Carl then joined Peter and helped keep Brock down until the cops arrived. When they get there, Chanel is described as being unresponsive. When she got to the hospital, she didn't respond to what is called a shaken shout, which apparently is a legit medical thing, I guess, and only showed responses when her nail beds were pinched. 
She was able to vomit without assistance when the authorities arrived on the scene. She finally regained consciousness three hours after her attack at 4.15 a.m. When she woke, she felt pine needles in her hair and on her body. She saw dried blood on her hands and elbows, but she had no idea what had happened to her. In her initial interview with police, she told them that she didn't remember being alone with any man that night and that she hadn't consented to any sexual activity. Here are the events from Chanel's perspective in her impact statement. I shuffled from room to room with a blanket wrapped around me, pine needles trailing behind me. I left a little pile in every room I sat in. I was asked to sign papers that said, Rape Victim, and I thought something has really happened. My clothes were confiscated, and I stood naked while the nurses held a ruler to various abrasions on my body and photographed them. The three of us worked to comb the pine needles out of my hair, six hands to fill one paper bag. To calm me down, they said it's just the flora and fauna, flora and fauna. I had multiple swabs inserted into my vagina and anus, needles for shots, pills, and an icon pointed right into my spread legs. I had long pointed beaks inside me and had my vagina smeared with cold blue paint to check for abrasions. After a few hours of this, they let me shower. I stood there, examining my body beneath the stream of water and decided, I don't want my body anymore. I was terrified of it. I didn't know what had been in it, if it had been contaminated, who had touched it. I wanted to take off my body like a jacket and leave it at the hospital with everything else. On that morning, all that I was told was that I had been found behind a dumpster, potentially penetrated by a stranger, and that I should get retested for HIV because results don't always show up immediately. But for now, I should go home and get back to my normal life. Imagine stepping back into the world with only that information. They gave me huge hugs, and I walked out of the hospital into the parking lot, wearing the new sweatshirt and sweatpants they provided me, as they had only allowed me to keep my necklace and shoes. She decided to go on with life as usual, and went back to work right away. But as she learned more and more about what had happened to her, Chanel's mental and physical health began to suffer. This was how she discovered more of what happened to her on the night of January 18th from her impact statement. One day, I was at work, scrolling through the news on my phone, and came across an article. In it, I read and learned for the first time about how I was found unconscious, with my hair disheveled, long necklace wrapped around my neck, bra pulled out of my dress, dress pulled off over my shoulders and up above my waist, that I was butt naked all the way down to my boots, legs spread apart, and had been penetrated by a foreign object by someone I did not recognize. This was how I learned what happened to me, sitting at my desk reading the news at work. I learned what happened to me the same time everyone else in the world learned what happened to me. That's when the pine needles in my hair made sense. They didn't fall from a tree. He had taken off my underwear. His fingers had been inside of me. I didn't even know this person. I still don't know this person. When I read about me like this, I said, this can't be me. This can't be me. I could not digest or accept any of this information. I could not imagine my family having to read about this online. I kept reading. In the next paragraph, I read something that I will never forgive. I read that according to him, I liked it. I liked it. Again, I do not have words for these feelings. And then, at the bottom of the article, after I learned about the graphic details of my own sexual assault, the article listed his swimming times. She was found breathing, unresponsive, with her underwear six inches away from her bare stomach, curled in fetal position. By the way, he's really good at swimming. Throw in my miles, time if that's what we're doing. I'm good at cooking. Put that in there. I think the end is where you list your extracurriculars to cancel out all the sickening things that have happened. In Brock's initial telling of the events, he told the police that he had met the victim outside the frat house and left with her. He said he didn't know her name and wouldn't recognize her if he saw her again. Cool. After he was arrested, he revised his story, saying that they had met at the Kappa Alpha frat house that night, and they had drank some beers together before they, quote, "...walked away from the house holding hands." He also said at the party that they had danced together and kissed on the dance floor. From Chanel's impact statement, Dancing is a cute term. Was it snapping fingers and twirling dancing or just bodies grinding up against each other in a crowded room? I wonder if kissing was just faces sloppily pressed up against each other. He also said that she had said yes to going back to his dorm. This is also an interesting statement about the kissing because he may have been remembering someone else who looked an awful lot like Chanel. 
Brock was also drinking heavily, so he may have been confusing Chanel with her sister, who had an unfortunate run-in with Brock Turner that night as well. Brock had approached her sister and started aggressively trying to kiss her at some point during the party that night. Brock then told police that Chanel had slipped when they were making their way to his dorm and she fell to the ground. He says he knelt beside her and began kissing her. Who would do this? Who would swoop down next to a drunk person they don't know and start kissing them after they fell? Did he think this made him sound like some sort of Prince Charming? Also, what girl wants to fool around on the concrete outside in a college campus? No one. Chanel said in her impact statement, Note, if a girl falls down, help her get back up. If she's too drunk to even walk and falls down, do not mount her, hump her, take off her underwear, and insert your hand inside of her vagina. If a girl falls down, help her up. If she is wearing a cardigan over her dress, don't take it off so that you can touch her breasts. Maybe she is cold. Maybe that's why she wore the cardigan. He said that he then asked the girl if she wanted him to finger her. Sorry for the description there. And which he claims she said yes to. He stated that he had been fingering her for about a minute while they were kissing. He made the sexual contact seem consensual, telling the police that he had taken off her clothes and she was rubbing his back as he touched her. Now, this next phrase is so gross, I apologize that I even have to read it to all of you, but it is part of the official police records and this asshole (laughs) told the police this. Brock claims that he then began, quote, dry humping her. He told the cops that while they were fooling around, he started to feel nauseous. And as he walked away to throw up, he heard a man speaking a foreign language, then another. Next thing he knows, he's being tackled and screamed at. The prosecuting attorney, Alale Kianerchi, said of Brock's version of the events, He's able to write the script because she has no memory. But just because he wrote the script doesn't mean that knowledgeable jurors have to believe it. She then brilliantly compared his version to that of a badly written young adult novel. Chanel does the same in her impact statement. Quote, And then it came time for him to testify, and I learned what it meant to be re-victimized. I want to remind you, the night after it happened, he said he never planned to take me to his dorm. He said he didn't know why we were behind the dumpster. He got up to leave because he wasn't feeling well when he was suddenly chased and attacked. Then he learned I could not remember. So one year later, as predicted, a new dialogue emerged. Brock had a strange new story, almost sounded like a poorly written young adult novel with kissing and dancing and hand-holding and lovingly tumbling onto the ground. And most importantly, in this new story, there was suddenly consent. One year after the incident, he remembered, oh yeah, by the way, she actually said yes to everything, so... In a police interview, he was asked about the victim's well-being during the offense, to which he stated... At no time did I see that she was not responding. If at any time I thought she wasn't responding, I would have stopped immediately. By his account, Brock initially said that he had drank five Rolling Rock beers and had two swigs of fireball whiskey he had found in his friend's room. He said he then had more beer later with about a total of nine drinks. When his blood alcohol levels were tested after his arrest, they estimated that his levels at the time of the assault would have been about 0.171% at the time. Chanel's estimated blood alcohol level at the time of the assault was between 0.22 to 0.24%. That's like almost deadly levels. To compare, the legal limit is 0.08 and higher for those over 21, and the legal limit being only 0.01 and higher if you are under 21. So basically, any any bit of a drink is going to be illegal if you're under 21. And Brock was only 19 at the time and not of legal drinking age. At Brock's level of intoxication, according to PinelandsRecovery.com, they say the term sloppy drunk applies. Dysphoria will become stronger and nausea may occur. Walking becomes difficult and you may fall and hurt yourself. Chanel's levels, according to the website, you'll feel dazed, confused, and disoriented. Balance and muscle control have deteriorated and you may need help walking. You may not notice if you injure yourself as feelings of pain are numbed. Nausea and vomiting are likely, and an impaired gag reflex could cause you to choke on your own vomit. Blackouts occur at this blood alcohol level. So I've never blacked out. My body physically just like won't let me get there. There will be times that I'll kind of like brown out as I'll describe it. Like I'll kind of forget certain parts of the night or forget that I said something or maybe, you know, saw somebody. But I've never actually had a full on blackout. And not that I was ever questioning it, but I'm like, 
how did she not wake up from this attack? Like she, her body like went through it. How do we just shut down like that and let something happen? That is so terrifying to me. And I'm sure that was a huge level of the terror that Chanel felt going through all of this, just being like, wait, why didn't my body protect me? Why didn't I wake up? Why couldn't I respond to this? That is so terrifying to think about. According to the police report, the victim stated that she had dinner at about 2100 hours or 9 p.m. and drank four shots of whiskey at home between 10 and 1030 p.m. Now, she said that her alcohol tolerance was much higher in college and she was probably trying to keep up with her sister. So this makes sense. But if I had four shots of whiskey between 10 and 1030 p.m., by 1045, I would be in bed and possibly vomiting. So there's the differences between she and I. She said that she just felt buzzed at this time, but was coherent and able to function. At about 11.15, she had two more shots of vodka, which she poured herself. The last thing she remembers is needing to pee at the party and finding that all the bathrooms were full, so she went outside. She then met back up with her sister and friend, along with a few guys. Then it all goes blank. She says her last memory was around midnight, or about an hour before the attack. She had made phone calls to her sister and to her boyfriend, Lucas, which she doesn't recall. Lucas's voicemails he got from Chanel that night will help the prosecution prove Chanel's level of intoxication to the jury. I feel like alcohol plays a really interesting part in this trial because it's important for both Brock's defense and Chanel's defense in a way. Because there has to be proof that Chanel was so intoxicated that there was no possible way that she could consent. But then Brock is also using the excuse that he was so drunk that he doesn't know what his behaviors were. And I really resent the fact that alcohol was blamed for so much of Brock's behavior. Just because someone is drinking doesn't give them an excuse to rape and sexually assault a person. It's the same excuse as when someone only cheated because they were drunk. Chanel agrees with me, and she says in her impact statement, Again, you are not wrong for drinking. Everyone around you was not sexually assaulting me. You were wrong for doing what nobody else was doing, which was pushing your erect dick in your pants against my naked, defenseless body, concealed in a dark area where partygoers could no longer see or protect me, and my own sister could not find me. Sipping fireball is not your crime. Peeling off and discarding my underwear like a candy wrapper to insert your finger into my body is where you went wrong. Why I am still explaining this. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. At this point, I think it's important to note the time in our recent history that this story takes place. In 2015, Trump's election campaign for the 2016 presidency was in full swing, and political tensions were rising between the right and the left, and divisions were deepening. The attack took place about three years prior to the Me Too movement, which made a huge difference in the conversation around sexual assault. I think that if this case had happened in 2018 or 2019, maybe there would have been a different response from the public, from the media, and a different result in this case. Brock withdrew from Stanford University shortly after the attack, avoiding a disciplinary hearing with university officials. On January 20th, Stanford announced that Brock Turner was banned from ever setting foot on campus again, which apparently is the harshest disciplinary sanction to impose on a student. Brock had had dreams of swimming for the U.S. national team at the 2018 Olympics, but USA Swimming made a statement on June 6th stating that he would not be eligible for membership if he sought to reapply. On June 10th, they imposed a lifetime ban on him, and his swimming career was effectively over. 
Like I had alluded to earlier, there were witnesses and other young women who had had negative interactions with Brock in the past, both on the night of the assault and before. On June 25, 2015, Detective Kim received information from two young women, I'll be referring to them as M and H, who had had an encounter with Brock the weekend before Chanel was attacked. M and H had attended yet another party thrown at Kappa Alpha, where M was introduced to Brock Turner. At one point in the night, the girls had gotten up on a table to dance. Brock followed them up there. This annoyed the girls. M described Brock as being flirtatious with her, putting his hat on her and such. She shook it off. I hate that move. He then started dancing behind her and started trying to turn her to face him. This made her uncomfortable and she shifted away so he wouldn't be directly behind her. She said that he got really touchy and put his hands on her waist and stomach as well as her upper thighs. Becoming increasingly more uncomfortable, she got down off the table. She said that Brock Turner, quote, creeped her out because of his persistence. Before going into what the trial was like, here's what she wrote about it in her impact statement. I thought there's no way this is going to trial. There were witnesses. There was dirt in my body. He ran but was caught. He's going to settle, formally apologize, and we will both move on. Instead, I was told he hired a powerful attorney, expert witnesses, private investigators who were going to try and find details about my personal life to use against me find loopholes in my story to invalidate me and my sister in order to show that his sexual assault was in fact a misunderstanding, that he was going to go to any length to convince the world he had simply been confused. Chanel said that she felt her character was on trial just as much as Brock's character was. She obsessed over what to wear to court and thought about how she would act. She worried that she wouldn't appear as the perfect victim, as a young woman who drank and occasionally blacked out. To me, this proves that you were unconscious and couldn't give consent, girl. You're okay. She describes the unwanted participation in the trial in her impact statement, saying, This was a game of strategy, as if I could be tricked out of my own worth. The sexual assault had been so clear, but instead, here I was at the trial, answering questions like, How old are you? How much do you weigh? What did you eat that day? Well, what did you have for dinner? Who made dinner? Did you drink with dinner? No, not even water. When did you drink? How much did you drink? What container did you drink out of? Who gave you the drink? How much do you usually drink? Who dropped you off at this party? At what time? But where exactly? What were you wearing? Why were you going to this party? What do you do when you got there? Are you sure you did that? But what time did you do that? What does this text mean? Who were you texting? When did you urinate? Where did you urinate? With whom did you urinate outside? Was your phone on silent when your sister called? Do you remember silencing it? Really? Because on page 53, I'd like to point out that you said it was set to ring. Did you drink in college? You said you were a party animal. How many times did you black out? Did you party at frats? Are you serious with your boyfriend? Are you sexually active with him? When did you start dating? Would you ever cheat? Did you have a history of cheating? What did you mean when you said you wanted to reward him? Do you remember what time you woke up? Were you wearing your cardigan? What color was your cardigan? Do you remember any more from that night? No? Okay, well, we'll let Brock fill it in. At one point in the trial, she learned that evidence photos of her naked body were shown while she was outside the courtroom without her prior knowledge. This is a portion from her memoir. For the judge and Brock Turner, for his brother and his father and every reporter and stranger in that room to see, while this was happening, I must have been down the hall, smoothing my blouse, trying to look presentable, the humiliation I feel now for walking in with a smile while everyone in there had already seen me naked. The trial took an unbelievably heavy toll on Chanel, of course. She spoke about its effects in her impact statement. He has done irreversible damage to me and my family during the trial, and we have sat silently, listening to him shape the evening. But in the end, his unsupported statements and his attorney's twisted logic fooled no one. The truth won. The truth spoke for itself. Before sentencing, family, friends, and others close to the perpetrator and victim were able to send in letters to the court to help the judge determine sentencing. There were dozens of letters sent to Judge Aaron Persky supporting Brock, including both of his parents, his siblings, former swim coaches, and teachers, even a couple of female friends. Before I get into the letters, let me introduce you to the Turner family, who you will be hearing from. 
His dad's name is Dan, who works as a civilian Air Force employee, and his mom is Carlene, a registered nurse. He also has a sister, Carolyn, and a brother. His mom wrote a four-page letter to the court, which doesn't mention the victim once, and goes on and on about her son's childhood, how he asked his girlfriend to the prom, and his academic and swimming accolades. In one portion of the letter, she gets hella overdramatic when she writes, My first thought upon wakening every morning is, This isn't real. This can't be real. Why him? Why him? Why? Why? Then a little further down, Brock will have to register at the highest tier on the sex offender registry, which means he is on the same level as a pedophile slash child molester. There is no differentiation. The public records will reflect a tier three, so people will wrongly assume he is a child molester. I fear for his lifelong safety. Go fuck yourself, Carlene. Are you kidding me? Also, pretty much everyone in the entire nation knows who the fuck your son is. We know that Brock Turner fucking raped, quote, Emily Doe at the time. He ruined his own life. His sister Carolyn, who was 22 at the time, blamed alcohol. Think of the extraordinary potential he has to be a voice in society and speak out against the binge drinking and promiscuity that defines college campuses. She also gets super dramatic about how he won't survive in jail or prison. Look at him. He won't survive it. He will be damaged forever. His dad's letters seem to cause the most outrage. There was one part of the letter in particular that went viral. Dan Turner wrote that a jail or prison sentence would be a, quote, steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of 20 plus years of his life. He later tried to backpedal, saying it was a poor choice of words, and he wasn't necessarily talking about sexual action. Whatever. I love Chanel's response to the dad's letter in her book. She wrote, In swimming, one one-hundredth of a second is the difference between victory and loss, yet he wanted me to write off 20 minutes as insignificant. One father, who was also a pastor in North Carolina, wrote an open letter to Dan Turner on his blog that went viral as hell. It's titled, To Brock Turner's Father from Another Father. This is the letter. I've read your letter to the judge on behalf of your son, Brock, asking for leniency in his rape conviction. I need you to understand something, and I say this as a father who dearly loves my son as much as you must love yours. Brock is not the victim here. His victim is the victim. She is the wounded one. He is the damager. If his life has been deeply altered, it is because he has horribly altered another human being. Because he made a reprehensible choice to take advantage of someone for his own pleasure. This young woman will be dealing with this for far longer than the embarrassingly short six months your son is being penalized. She will endure the unthinkable trauma of his, quote, 20 minutes of action for the duration of her lifetime. And the fact that you seem unaware of this fact is exactly why we have a problem. This is why young men continue to rape women. This is why so many men believe that they can do whatever they please to a woman's body without accountability. This is the reason so many victims of sexual assault never step forward. This is why white privilege is real and insidious, and usually those with it are oblivious to it. I understand you trying to humanize your son in your letter, talking to the judge about his favorite snacks and swim practice and about the memories that are sweet for you as his father. But to be honest, I don't give a damn. And if his victim was your daughter, I'm quite sure you wouldn't either. There is no scenario where your son should be the sympathetic figure here. He is the assailant. He is the rapist. I can't imagine as a father how gut-wrenching such a reality is for you. But it is still true. Brock has to register as a sex offender because he sexually assaulted an incapacitated young woman. This is why we have such requirements. Because one vile act against another human being is one too many. Because we don't get a do-over when we do unspeakable things. Because people need to be protected with knowledge of others in their midst who have failed so egregiously at respecting another person's basic dignity. The idea that your son has never violated another woman next to a dumpster before isn't a credit to his character. We don't get kudos for only raping one person in our lifetime. I don't believe your son is a monster, but he acted like one, and that needs to be accounted for. To be sure, this decision is not the sum total of Brock's life, but it is an important part of the equation, and it matters deeply. 
And to be clear, Mr. Turner, alcohol and sexual promiscuity are not the story here. The story here is that young men have choices to make, and these choices define them, even if those choices are made when temptation is great and opportunity is abundant. In fact, our humanity is most expressed when faced with such things. We choose integrity and decency when we abstain from doing what is easy but wrong. We as parents don't control our children. Most parents understand this. Despite our best efforts to the contrary, they fail and fall and do things we'd never consent to. I certainly hope this is such an occasion, though it is not coming across that way in your letter. It feels like you want more sympathy and goodwill toward your son than you want for the survivor of his crime, and it's simply not good enough for her, for those young men and women watching. And that's simply not good enough for her or for those young men or for those young men and women watching. You love your son, and you should, but love him enough to teach him to own the terrible decisions he's made, to pay the debt to society as prescribed, then to find a redemptive and then to find a redemptive path to walk, doing the great work in the world that you say he will. For now, though, as one father to another, help us teach our children to do better by letting them see us do better. One of Brock's female friends since childhood, Leslie Rasmussen, wrote a letter in defense of him as well. <clears throat> she writes, I don't think it's fair to base the fate of the next 10 plus years of his life on the decision of a girl who doesn't remember anything but the amount she drank to press charges against him. I have to pause a second to say, fuck you, Leslie. I'm not blaming her directly for this because that isn't right. But where do you... But where do we draw the line and stop worrying about being politically correct every second of the day and see that rape on campuses isn't always because people are race isn't always because people are rapists. I'm sorry. What? That math isn't mathing to me. That logic makes no sense. Rape happens because of rapists. Period. Later in the letter she wrote there are idiot boys and girls having too much to drink and not being aware of their surroundings and having clouded judgment. You are what is wrong with women, Leslie Rasmussen. She called him respectful, caring, talented, and smart enough to know better. This woman was part of a punk rock band called Good English, and they received a hell of a lot of backlash after her letter went public. The band was blacklisted at venues all across the country. <clears throat> A friend of the family, a former prosecutor, Margaret Quinn, wrote, There is no doubt that Brock made a mistake that night. He made a mistake in drinking excessively to the point where he could not fully appreciate that his female acquaintance was so intoxicated. The founders of the Stanford Association for Sexual Assault Prevention, or ASAP, wrote a letter and circulated a position countering many of these statements countering many of these sentiments. The letter contains the profound impact that the sentencing of Brock Turner will have on the community of Stanford. The letter says how his actions, quote, raised serious concerns about campus safety and that many students now fear walking home, now fear walking alone at night because, quote, anyone can become a victim of sexual violence, of sexual violence as evident by Mr. Turner's actions. They raised concerns that a light sentence such as probation or a few months in jail would send the incorrect message that this was not a serious crime. <clears throat> this would undermine the trust in the legal system at large, diminish reporting, and possibly make the Stanford community a more dangerous place for all. Unfortunately, their fear of a light sentence and probation happened exactly so. The students also made a point to note that the entire class of 2018, which Brock Turner would have been part of, had to listen to hours of speeches on the importance of acquiring consent and not engaging in sexual activity when alcohol was involved or the other person is unconscious and unable to give consent. As of the filing, 255 students signed the petition in support of sentencing Brock to prison. Brock Turner presented a statement himself as well. He further stated that he was sorry that he put the victim and her family through. 
that he was sorry for what he put the victim and her family through during the trial. He explained, During the trial, I didn't want to victimize her at all. That was my attorney and his way of approaching the case. I didn't mean to treat her as anything else than an exceptional person. I'm sorry for her having to go through this entire process and having to even think about this for a second, all because of my actions that night. I wish I could take it all back. I wish I could just take it all back. I didn't even deserve to talk with her, to interact with her. I can't believe I imposed such suffering on her, and I'm so sorry. In Chanel's statement, she fired back, Your attorney is not your scapegoat. He represents you. Did your attorney say some incredulous... Did your attorney say some incredulously, infuriating, degrading things? Absolutely. He said you had an erection because it was cold. Here are my opinions on his statement and apology. First of all, he sounds like he's in love with her when he describes him... When he describes Chanel that way, and it's really creepy. Calling her exceptional and saying that he didn't even deserve to talk to her, it's weird. Secondly, and more importantly, nowhere in there did you apologize for what you did. You apologized for her having to go through a trial, and if you had pled guilty, you could have saved her from that. And for having to think about this, whatever that means, the attack, the trial, I don't know, And you say that you want to take your actions back, yet all through trial you have stated that you did not act in any way that was unfavorable. So what actions are you apologizing for? Brock said that his plans for the future include getting a degree in electrical engineering and spoke about having met with a local Ohio judge to establish a program for high school and college students in which he will speak about his experience and speak, quote, out against the college campus drinking culture and the sexual promiscuity that goes along with that. Are you talking about your excessive drinking or your victims? Are you talking about your sexual promiscuity or your or Chanel's? He goes on, I want to show people that one night of drinking can ruin a life. I don't want anyone to experience any part of the situation. I want to be an example so young people realize how much of an issue this is. My man, you're speaking on the wrong issue. Yes, drinking on college campuses is a problem, but it is going to happen. Instead of traveling around telling kids not to drink and have sex, we should be teaching them proper sex education, teach them about the effects of alcohol, and most importantly, about consent and rape culture. The way you, Brock, could have truly been an example was by either pleading guilty or by getting a harsh and deserved sentence. Chanel responded to the idea of a Brock Turner speaking to her in her statement like this. You realize having a drinking problem is different than drinking is different than drinking and then forcefully trying to have sex with someone. Show men how to respect women, not how to drink less. Drinking culture and the sexual promiscuity that goes along with that. Goes along with that like a side effect, like fries on the side of your order. Where does promiscuity even come into play? I don't see headlines that read, Brock Turner guilty of drinking too much and the sexual promiscuity that goes along with that. Campus sexual assault. There's your first PowerPoint slide. Rest assured, if you fail to fix the topic of your talk, If you fail to fix the topic of your talk, I will follow you to every school you go to and give a follow-up presentation. In 2016, Brock Allen Turner registered as a sex offender in his hometown of Bellbrook, Ohio, in Greene County. When reporters were there to try to snap a picture, his mother attempted to hide his identity. When he returned home from his brief stint in county jail, his neighbors came out of their homes brandishing rifles to send him a message. They won't hurt him unless they catch him attacking someone again. As for Judge Aaron Persky, despite allegations that race, gender, and class bias influenced his lenient sentencing of Turner, the California Commission on Judicial Performance found no wrongdoing in their investigation of the case. Nonetheless, Persky was recalled by voters on June 5, 2018, during the 2018 California primary elections. Later, 
Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, the public outrage at the sentence in the Turner case prompted the California state legislature to pass two bills that would change California state law on sexual assault. Assembly Bill 701 would broaden California's definition of rape so that it would include digital penetration as well as penile penetration. Assembly Bill 2888 would provide a mandatory minimum of a three-year prison sentence for sexual assault of an unconscious or intoxicated person. Previously, California law provided a mandatory minimum prison sentence when a defendant uses force, but had no mandatory minimum sentence when the victim is unconscious or incapacitated and unable to resist. The final versions of these bills were both unanimously approved by California legislature. Both bills subsequently went to Governor Jerry Brown's desk, and the bills were signed into law on September 30, 2016. The second edition of the Criminal Justice Textbook, Introduction to Criminal Justice, by University of Colorado Denver professors Callie Marie Renison and Mary Dodge, uses Turner's mugshot as the accompanying photo in the entry that defines rape. According to the caption beneath Turner's photo, which appears on page 20 at the top section in the book on rape, Brock Turner, a Stanford student who raped and assaulted an unconscious female student behind a dumpster at a fraternity party, was recently released from jail after serving only three months. Some are shocked at how short his sentence is. Others who are more familiar with the way sexual violence has been handled in the criminal justice system are shocked that he was found guilty and served any time at all. What do you think? The book was published in January 2017. In September 2017, an image of the page was widely circulated on social media. Renison, who was awarded the Bonnie S. Fisher Victimology Career Award in 2016, explained in reference to her acceptance of that award that the textbook is her attempt to change the dialogue about victims of crime and its perpetrators within the criminal justice community. In the 18th season of the TV show Law & Order Special Victims Unit, they highlighted this case in an episode titled Rape Interrupted. Ooh, I don't know if I like that. The episode was inspired by the case. And in it, Sergeant Patrick Griffin, Benson's first partner out of the academy, his son is a suspect in a rape investigation that puts Benson at odds with the ADA, Barbara, and Griffin. I want to read parts of the rest of Chanel's beautifully written statement. These portions speak to the effects that the assault, its aftermath, and the trial have put her through. She says... See, one thing we have in common is that we were both unable to get up in the morning. I am no stranger to suffering. You made me a victim. In newspapers, my name was unconscious, intoxicated woman. Ten syllables, and nothing more than that. For a while, I believed that was all I was. I had to force myself to relearn my real name, my identity. To relearn that this is not all I am. That I am not just a drunk victim at a frat party found behind a dumpster, while you are the all-American swimmer at the top university, innocent until proven guilty, with so much at stake. I am a human being who has been irreversibly hurt. My life was put on hold for over a year, waiting to figure out if I was worth something. My independence, natural joy, gentleness, and steady lifestyle I had been enjoying became distorted beyond recognition. I became closed off, angry, self-deprecating, tired, irritable, empty. The isolation at times was unbearable. You cannot give me back the life I had before that night either. While you worry about your shattered reputation, I refrigerated spoons every night so when I woke up and my eyes were puffy from crying, I would hold the spoons to my eyes to lessen the swelling so I could see. I showed up an hour late to work every morning, excused myself to cry in the stairwells, I can tell you all the best places in that building to cry where no one can hear you. The pain became so bad that I had to explain the private details to my boss to let her know why I was leaving. I needed time because continuing day to day was not possible. I used my savings to go as far away as I could possibly be. I did not return to work full time as I knew I'd have to take weeks off in the future for the hearing and trial that were constantly being rescheduled. My life was put on hold for over a year My structure collapsed. I can't sleep alone at night without having a light on like a five-year-old because I have nightmares of being touched where I cannot wake up. I did this thing where I waited until the sun came up and felt safe enough to sleep. For three months, I went to bed at six o'clock in the morning. I used to pride myself on my independence. Now I'm afraid to go on walks in the evening, to attend social events with drinking among friends where I should be comfortable being. I have become a little barnacle, always needing to be at someone's side, to have my boyfriend standing next to me, sleeping beside me, protecting me. 
It is embarrassing how feeble I feel, how timidly I move through life, always guarded, ready to defend myself, ready to be angry. You have no idea how hard I have worked to rebuild parts of me that are still weak. It took me eight months to even talk about what happened. I could no longer connect with friends, with everyone around me. I would scream at my boyfriend, my own family, whenever they brought this up. You never let me forget what happened to me. At the end of the hearing, the trial, I was too tired to speak. I would leave drained, silent. I would go home, turn off my phone for days, and I would not speak. You bought me a ticket to a planet where I lived by myself. Every time a new article came out, I lived with the paranoia that my entire hometown would find out and know me as the girl who got assaulted. I didn't want anyone's pity, and am still learning to accept a victim as being part of my identity. You made my own hometown an uncomfortable place to be. You cannot give me back my sleepless nights. The way I have broken down sobbing uncontrollably if I'm watching a movie and a woman is harmed. To say it lightly, this experience has expanded my empathy for other victims. I have lost weight from stress. When people would comment, I told them I've been running a lot lately. There are times I did not want to be touched. I have to relearn that I am not fragile. I am capable. I am wholesome. Just not livid and weak. You should never have done this to me. Secondly, you should have never made me fight so long to tell you. You should have never done this to me. But here we are. The damage is done. No one can undo it. And now we both have a choice. We can let this destroy us. I can remain angry and hurt and you can be in denial. Or we can face it head on. I accept the pain. You accept the punishment. And we move on. Your life is not over. You have decades of years ahead to rewrite your story. The world is huge. It is so much bigger than Palo Alto and Stanford, and you will make a space for yourself in it where you can be useful and happy. But right now, you do not get to shrug your shoulders and be confused anymore. You do not get to pretend that there were no red flags. You have been convicted of violating me intentionally, forcibly, sexually, with malicious intent, and all you can admit to is consuming alcohol. Do not talk about the sad way your life was upturned because alcohol made you do bad things. Figure out how to take responsibility for your own conduct. To conclude, I want to say thank you. To everyone from the intern who made me oatmeal when I woke up at the hospital that morning, to the deputy who waited beside me, to the nurses who calmed me, to the detective who listened to me and never judged me, to my advocates who stood unwaveringly beside me, to my therapist who taught me to find courage and vulnerability, to my boss for being kind and understanding to my incredible parents who teach me how to turn pain into strength, to my grandma who snuck chocolate into the courtroom throughout this to give to me, my friends who remind me how to be happy, to my boyfriend who is patient and loving, to my unconquerable sister who is the other half of my heart, to Alale, my idol, who fought tirelessly and never doubted me. Thank you to everyone involved in the trial for their time and attention. Thank you, girls across the nation who wrote cards to my DA to give to me. So many strangers who cared for me. Most importantly, thank you to the two men who saved me, who I have yet to meet. I sleep with two bicycles that I drew taped above my bed to remind myself that there are heroes in this story, that we are looking out for one another. To have known all of these people, to have felt their protection and love, is something I will never forget. And finally, to girls everywhere, I am with you. On nights when you feel alone, I am with you. When people doubt or dismiss you, I am with you. I fought every day for you, so never stop fighting. As the author Anne Lamott once wrote, lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there, shining. Although I can't save every boat, I hope that by speaking today, you absorbed a small amount of light, a small knowing that you can't be silenced, a small satisfaction that justice was served, a small assurance that we are getting somewhere, and a big, big knowing that you are important. Unquestionably, you are untouchable. You are beautiful. You are to be valued, respected, undeniably, every minute of every day. You are powerful, and nobody can take that away from you. To girls everywhere, I am with you. Thank you. On August 9th, 2019, in her interview with 60 Minutes, Chanel finally met Carl and Peter, the Swedish exchange students on their bikes who took down Brock Turner and saved her from further assault. Her memoir, Know My Name, was published on September 4th, 2019 and became a bestseller. It is truly one of the best written books I've ever read. 
The book won the 2019 National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiographies. On top of that, the New York Times named it one of its most notable books of 2019. After her assault, Chanel began taking art courses by the recommendation of her therapist. In the summer of 2015, she attended a printmaking class and fell in love with it. In 2020, a mural drawn by Chanel appeared in the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. The 70-foot by 13-foot mural depicts three vignettes of a cartoon figure with the phrases, I was, I am, and I will be. On November 1, 2016, Glamour named Emily Doe, since her identity was still unknown, as a woman of the year for, quote, changing the conversation about sexual assault forever, citing that her impact statement had been read over 11 million times. She attended the award ceremony anonymously. In 2019, Stanford University installed a plaque on campus memorializing the assault. As we can see, Chanel has gone on to do amazing things. As for Brock Turner, women in Ohio, where Brock Turner currently lives, are posting images and videos of Brock, who is now sometimes going by his middle name, Alan, at local bars. Brock, Alan, whatever you want to call him, is now 29 years old and lives in Dayton, Ohio. TikTok users warn, he frequents local bars in the area. Do not let him leave with an intoxicated woman. Inform the woman who he is. Inform the bartender, bouncers. Brock Turner does not belong in public. As of 2021, he works for a cooling technology company, which earns him about $12 an hour, and he drives a 2008 Chrysler. His probation was complete in 2019, but he must register as a Tier 3 sexual offender for the rest of his life. <sighs> okay, let's all take a deep breath. <laughs> I'm losing my voice after all of that since I'm still not feeling well. And that was a heavy one. It was heavy to actually read all of the notes that I've been taking back to all of you and to kind of take it in all at once. So hopefully you are all doing okay after listening to this episode. But I hope if anything, all of the reports and quotes and things that I've read to you throughout this episode gives you a clearer picture of what happened in this case. This case was huge for so many years. And while I don't believe in speaking perpetrators' names all the time to give them the notoriety that they so badly want. I don't think Brock Turner wants this notoriety, so I'm going to scream the name Brock Allen Turner living in Dayton, Ohio until my face turns blue. Reddit is all over him. TikTok is all over him. And I know that there are more Brock Turners out there, but I love that there is support from other people in the community to be able to help support other women who may fall victim to him or others in the future. I love the letter that was written by the father that was talking about how they would treat their own child if they were going through something like this. And I completely agree with him. I think that if there was someone in my life that I loved so much who did something terrible, maybe that wouldn't mean that I stopped loving them. It's not something we can just turn off and on, I would assume, especially for a child. But as a parent, you have to accept when your kid has done something wrong and be okay with the punishment. The fact that his whole family stood behind him and saw him as the victim is so confusing to me. What if it was their daughter, Carolyn, who had actually gone through this attack? Would you be saying the same thing? And there is still a debate to this day as to whether or not Brock Turner is actually a rapist. There are people out there that think that he got too much jail time. And then, of course, there are people like me that think he should still be rotting in prison for what he did to Chanel. I'm so glad that she has turned this terrible, tragic event in her life into something that has become so inspiring to other people. Her artwork is amazing. Her writing is impeccable. She is someone that I truly idolize and look up to just for being her true, authentic self. If you want to know more about Chanel's story, I highly recommend reading her memoir, Know My Name. Like I've been saying, it is eloquently written, and I really think you will enjoy it, but it is a really, really heavy book, so read with care. Before I sign off on this episode, I do want to give you the information for RAIN one more time. You can call 800-656-HOPE or 800-656-4673 to talk to someone on the phone or live chat with someone at www.rainrainn.org. Help is out there, support is out there, and you are not alone. Alrighty, that is everything that I have for you today. 
I'm not even going to give you all of the spiels right now because I am so exhausted from that episode. Listen on Patreon. Give me a review. You know what to do. I love you all so very much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. If there is anything else that you want me to cover in the future, DM me on Instagram, email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com, and I would be happy to cover what you're wanting. All right, once again, that's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.